Today on CityCast Denver, we look at the issue of holding people in jail for money. Why do we still do this? You and I are accused of similar offenses, similar set of circumstances, and the only difference between the two of us is I have access to $100 and you don't. It is nonsensical that I get out and you don't. Today's Thursday, June 10th, 2021. I'm Paul Caroli, and this is CityCast Denver. here is the news. It's going to be another sunny day today with a high near 96. The Colorado State Legislature wrapped up its 2021 session on Tuesday evening, and we're going to be talking about a criminal justice reform effort that came down to the wire later in the show. But apart from that, lawmakers passed a few bills that I think you should know about. All the talk about imposing potency caps on cannabis products led to a compromise and funding for research on how high-potency weed products affect developing brains. Farm workers could be getting increased protections with a pretty wide-ranging new bill heading to Governor Polis's desk. It would lift an exemption on state and local minimum wage requirements, require employers to provide farm workers transportation to key service providers, and a whole mess of other new safeguards. We might need to talk more about this one. After the mass shooting in Boulder in March, the Democrats made a lot of progress on gun regulations, including one new bill allowing local governments to enact stricter gun control laws than the states. Lawmakers also agreed to set aside $15 million in federal stimulus money for programs providing services for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And of course, there's the $5.4 billion transportation bill I talked to Denver Post reporter John Murray about earlier this week. Definitely go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. And we'll keep an eye on Governor Jared Polis to see how many of these he signs into law. But seriously, that's just a few of the new bills coming out of the session. Peyton's got an extended roundup in our newsletter today. You've subscribed to the CityCast Denver newsletter, right? In the past few years, as I've been reading more and more about criminal justice reform in Denver, there's one person who always seems to have something to say. Maybe she's out there leading a protest, or maybe she's on the radio taking someone to task. But before she was an abolitionist, a movement leader, a public defender, Elizabeth Epps was the daughter of a very brave woman. I was raised by a woman who, in college as a nursing mom, took a Confederate flag down off of a frat house on her college and burned it in the square of Wake Forest University's you know, campus, burned the Confederate flag and then wrote a letter to the editor claiming responsibility for taking down their flag and burning it. So I, I was pretty much born into a family of, of activists and of, um, I guess, outspoken women. And here's the thing about Elizabeth. She's not just out there behind the bullhorn. She does the hard work of criminal justice reform every day. Whether it's bailing people out of jail with her organization, the Colorado Freedom Fund, or getting into the nitty gritty of law to find practical ways to work the system. Or even just being the person who's there to take the important call whenever it comes in. I need to give you a a disclaimer that I'm waiting on an important call that I really hope doesn't come the next 30 minutes, but because of the way light works, it might. So when I look down, it's because I'm looking to see if the call is is that that entity. So sorry for that. No, I Um, totally understand. We're grateful for your time. I caught up with Elizabeth earlier this week at a raw moment. She had been working with state lawmakers to reform Colorado's pre-trial holding and arrest provisions. So like, how do judges set bail? 
who has to sit in jail for what crimes. And on Monday, in the House Finance Committee, a Democratic majority killed the bill she'd been working so hard on. So, Elizabeth, we're going to talk about a, um, a bill today that carries the names Michael Marshall and Marvin Booker. Um, but before we even get into the content of the bill, I think it's important that listeners understand who those men were. Can you can you briefly tell the story of uh, of Michael Marshall and the story of Marvin Booker? Yeah, um, it's it's an honor to, to speak their names and speak of their stories. I think that their family members are the ones who are um, are best entrusted to tell their stories, but I do think their family members would be um, okay with me speaking um, in this way about them. So both men were were gentle souls who were um, in Denver and who uh, both their their lives were both ended in, in the custody of the Denver Sheriff's Department. Uh, Marvin Booker was a was a street preacher. Mr. Booker faced challenges that uh, a lot of folks in our community do with being unhoused and with dealing with um, substance use issues and was arrested and charged with a very minor um, personal use related drug offense and was effectively killed over it. And I hate that in telling part of his story, so much of it focuses on the end of his life. Uh, and so I just want to name, right, that he's so much more than what Denver police and Den Denver sheriffs did to him. But that is why we why we know of him. Michael Marshall, um, another gentle soul by everyone's accounts, um, a funny and smart man um, who in, in his adult years faced challenges again. I mean, this is this is a theme that is pervasive through folks who are caged in our community, but he, like Mr. Booker, dealt with challenges of, of homelessness and he he had some mental health challenges. He was at a motel where his, his family had paid for rent for him. He had some sort of mental health crisis and instead of being enveloped in the loving arms of healthcare workers or mental health specialists, instead he was brutalized by law enforcement first by being taken into custody, shackled by police who arrested him for trespass, a minor offense that should not be arrestable in, in Colorado. And then he was um, killed killed in the Denver jail. And and this act, it, this was reform that you were very close to that would have that would have changed something about the way their their stories ended. Could you tell me what specific changes you all were pushing for with this bill, with this legislative um, effort? Certainly. So um, there's sort of two components to what, what was called SB 21273. And there's the components related to arrest provisions um, and components related to money bond. And uh, a set of, right, so the provisions related to each were, were, were named after each man. We talk about arrest and summons. This is, um, I'm gonna manage to talk about this without crying, but the defeat is fresh and it hurts because if we pass this, it is not an exaggeration to say that Rather, I should say, had this bill been in law um, years ago, Michael Marshall and Marvin Booker would still be with us. We wouldn't know their names. So the arrest provisions, what it would do specifically is, you know, like most folks know, when we say arrest, we mean literally putting someone in handcuffs and shackles, taking control of their body, putting their body in a cage, the actual arrest process. What 273 would have done 
is change the standard from custodial arrest to a summons. So it wouldn't decriminalize certain behavior, right? Side note to say, I'd love to see a bill where the beha certain behaviors were decriminalized, period. They shouldn't be illegal, period. But 273 didn't do that. What it did say is for a category of offenses, low-level offenses, um, so here we mean traffic offenses, petty offenses, many misdemeanors, not including domestic violence, not including motor vehicle theft, instead of being able to be arrested, well, the only thing that officers could have done, right, would have been to give him a ticket. So summons in lieu of arrest is really important. We think that it's a, a decarceral step. It is an abolitionist step that moves folks towards more liberation. We also, the, the second set of um, provisions, we recognize that, that cash bail, wealth-based detention in all its forms is classist, is racist, is um, I don't have one word to represent what it means when we say it harms people who are facing mental health challenges, but that is what it does. And so provisions that would, would limit the use of cash bond that would require PR bonds, PR meaning personal recognizance bonds, where if someone has been arrested for a certain set of offenses, we're going to say you can't hold them in the jail on money bond. And uh, in both cases, these men were, I think, uh, not I think, I know Michael Marshall was held on a $100 bond. That should have never been the case. Um, so while there's been other legislation, 1225, a couple years ago that did address PR bonds, this would extend that work further. The law tells us is very clear. It's clear in, in reading it. It's not clear if you watch Colorado courts in practice, but the law is clear that pretrial liberty is supposed to be the norm. Liberty is supposed to be the default. That's supposed to be the baseline presumption and that the standard to hold someone, a pretrial, unconvicted, innocent person, the standard has to be high. And so 273 would have pushed, would have pushed Colorado law to be more in line with that proposition, which is that we shouldn't be holding right. people unless they present an acute danger to society. And we certainly shouldn't be holding them on money belt. So that's what it would have done. Um, I'm profoundly disappointed <laughs> that it didn't pass. So, so that's what happened Monday night was, was there was a, there was a committee hearing and a debate and, and tell me what happened. Uh, part of the confession is I don't quite know. I was there and I still don't quite know what happened. You mentioned debate. There really wasn't one. There was 20 minutes of, of opposition okay. testimony and 20 minutes of, of positive testimony, but the um, no one, none of the elected representatives, and there were six of them who voted no in finance committee gave a reason. None even asked a question that would have suggested, sort of telegraphed their reason. So long-winded way of saying, yes, it died in the finance committee without any reasons given as to what financial reason would have made it die. Um, I think it is it is fair to you know there's plenty of blame to go to go around in terms of the failure of the bill. Um, I didn't work hard enough. I didn't get it done. But in terms of the actual votes, um, two Democrats ultimately killed the bill, voted no on finance, and didn't. Uh, it stings to recognize that. I'm very confident that we had the votes on the floor to pass this. Meaning, if it had gotten out of finance and gotten out of approach, if it got into the whole body we would have won. And so it hurt that these two Democrats um, exercised their power in such an outsized way to prevent it from going to the floor. I, I can't imagine how that must have felt after all this all this work and all this time and, and knowing, I mean, knowing what it means to you personally and how much it means to our community. Um, who were these two representatives? I feel like we should say their names so the people who can vote for them or against them next time might be better informed. Yeah, um, absolutely. So the, the chair of the House Finance Committee is Shannon Bird. 
um, who's in the 17th Judicial District, which is uh, uh, Adams County, I believe, and then Matthew Gray, who's a former prosecutor who's also in the 17th Judicial District, I believe his area is Broomfield, Superior. Um, so two, two, two white folks, two white lawyers who voted against it. Uh, just by way of a little bit of background, this, this bill was a hard, hard fight in the Senate. And Senate Dems were under a lot of pressure and criticism from a lot of folks, myself included, who really you know, held their proverbial feet to the fire, expected them to put in the work, and they did. They sent a good bill. They sent a solid, good, safe bill that was supported by seven of the district attorneys, the top law enforcement officials across the state, sent it to the House, and a dim majority failed us. Tell us why, right? Enlighten us. What, what does Matt Gray know? What does Shannon Bird know that their black and brown colleagues and that the Latino caucus and that the black caucus what do these two representatives know that the rest of us don't know? Let us know, right? Because we're not giving up. We're yeah. coming back. So that's where I am with that. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, maybe a role that uh, that we can play. Maybe we can send a couple of emails to representatives Bird and Gray and ask ask them to explain their votes. Hey, so I did reach out to representatives Shannon Bird and Matt Gray to ask why they opposed the bill on Monday evening and haven't heard back yet. I'll let you know when I do. But speaking of why why they might have uh, why they might have opposed this this bill, Republican Senator John Cook, a former Weld County Sheriff, he said something like, "Most lawmakers don't know anything about law enforcement or jails, but if we listen to the professionals, we'd be voting no on this bill." Do you know what he's talking about there when he's referring to the professionals? Yeah, um, I, I cautiously say. I, I do think I know what he means, actually. So I was in that hearing. Um, when he says, if we listen to the professionals, he means specifically if we listen to carceral folks in law enforcement who are supporting the status quo of cops, courts, and cages. So really what he's talking about are police. And he's correct that the vast majority of police, police chiefs, I should say, I don't know this about individual officers, they want to retain their power. That shouldn't surprise us. But we should recognize and Senator Cook should recognize police do not have a good history of reforming themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, we've been talking a lot about the politics surrounding this, but I don't want to lose the thread of the of the actual issue here. The matter at hand is this this question of bail reform. And I wanted to put an open ended question to you in your ideal world. How would you want this system to look? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, as an abolitionist, I have to, to, to name that the, the long-term goal is a world without cages, a world without cops. That's what we're working for. That's not an answer, though, to your question of what would the system look like in terms of in my lifetime. But I want to name that because for me, it's, it's a lens through which I'm working. And so it's grounding and it's an intentional, right? That's the goal. So what the system in the short term would look like, particularly when we're talking about uh, money bail, by short term, I mean two to three years in Colorado, we need to end wealth-based detention. Uh, there are two countries in the world that use uh, a for-profit system of bail bond, of money, money bond, two, us in the Philippines. So I'm, I'm looking forward to us moving past that. Um, in terms of what it would look like, it's hard to talk about this without getting too legally, but essentially the shorter answer is we would want a system where we have adversarial hearings. And what that would look like is us saying, 
you're saying that this person is so dangerous, right? They're presumed innocent, but we know that people do commit crimes, right? And so if what you're saying is that this person who's accused of X is so dangerous that she can't be free pending the resolution of her case, then we're going to have us a hearing. You're going to put on evidence, you being the state, sorry to make you the state in this example, but the state's going to put on evidence. The defense is going to put on evidence. And we want a judicial officer to consider all of that in deciding if the person is held or not. Um, as opposed to these 30 second bond hearings where the judge looks and sees, oh, she's been charged with sex work before in missed court and just sets a number. You and I are accused of similar offenses, similar set of circumstances. And the only difference between the two of us is I have access to $100 and you don't. It is nonsensical that I get out and you don't. So that disparity has to be um, has to be eliminated. That's that would be an overwhelming factor in what the system would look like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth Epps, thanks so much for joining us on CityCast. Thank you. I'm excited that y'all are here and doing this work. I love Bree. So it's good to talk to you too. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. I can't wait till she's back. We miss her. Yeah. She's a presence for real. That's all for us today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute and tell a friend about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. And until then, I hope you have a really good day. Do you want it to feel casual like that? Okay.